فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَحْدَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَمَّا بَعْدَ So you remember last time then, a couple of weeks ago, we began with منهج أو منهج سالكين and we did the brief introduction so today we're going to start on the section Kitabu Tahara, the chapter of purification. So for those of you who have the book, we'll begin with the reading first. <laughs> وحج البيت وصوم رمضان متفق عليه فشهادة أن لا إله إلا الله عين العبد واعتقاده والتزام أنه لا يستحق الألوهية والعبادة إلا الله وحده لا شريك له فيوجب ذلك للعبد إخلاص جميع الدين لله تعالى وأن تكون عباداته الظاهرة والباطنة كلها لله وحده وأن لا يشرك به شيئا في جميع أمور الدين وهذا أصل دين جميع الرسل وأتباعهم كما قال تعالى وما أرسلنا من قبلك من رسول إلا نوحي إليه أنه لا إله إلا أنا فاعبدون وشهادة أن محمد رسول الله أن يعتقد العبد أن الله أرسل محمدا صلى الله عليه وسلم إلى جميع الثقلين الإنس والجن بشيرا ونذيرا يدعوهم إلى توحيد الله وطاعته بتصديق خبره وامتثال أمره وأنه لا سعادة ولا صلاح في الدنيا والآخرة إلا بالإيمان به وطاعته وأنه يجب تقديم محبته على النفس والولد والناس أجمعين وأن الله أيهم بالمعجزات الدالة على رسالته وبما جبله الله عليه من العلوم الكاملة والأخلاق العالية وبما اشتمل عليه دينه من الهدى والرحمة والحق والمصالح الدينية والدنيوية وآيته الكبرى هذا القرآن العظيم بما فيه من الحق في الأخبار والأمن والنهي والله أعلم so he begins this section firstly with the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where the messenger mentioned that this religion is built upon five. The religion of Islam is built upon five pillars, upon five foundations. Firstly, Shahadati an la ilaha illallah. The testimony that none has the right to be worshipped in truth except Allah. Wa anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. And that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the messenger of Allah. That is, of course, the highest pillar of Islam where all of the other pillars they return back to. If a person does not accept that first pillar of Islam, 
then even if you accept the other four, you will not be considered Muslim. This first pillar is the key that all of the other pillars are then built upon. And that first pillar is the testimony that none has the right to be worshipped in truth except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the messenger of Allah. The second, iqam salah the establishment of the prayer, meaning that a believer performs his prayers in their accurate times properly in accordance to the sunnah, fulfilling the arkan, the pillars of the prayer, the wajibat, the obligations of the prayer, and the third part which is the sunan, the sunnah parts of the prayer, that is the establishment of the prayer, to pray it properly, properly and accurately in its times, as we have been taught in the sunnah. Sallu kama ra'aytumuni usalli. Pray as you have seen me pray. And then, Ita is zakah. The giving of the zakat. Annually, when a believer has the amount required, when a year has passed upon that minimum amount, then the zakat is due. And so this is one of the pillars of Islam, to give that zakat every year. And we're going to come across the chapter regarding zakat later on and how you collect the zakat, how much you collect, who is allowed to be given the zakat money, the eight categories of people who are allowed to be given zakat money. We'll come to that in the chapters later. Wahajjil bayt, the hajj to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is obligatory for the one capable once in the lifetime, the Hajj, one of the biggest pillars of Islam, and the Hajj, which is approaching now in just a few weeks' time, the Hajj that the believers from around the world will go to perform at Baytullah al-Haram. And then, Sawmi Ramadan, that has just passed us by the pillar of fasting the month of Ramadan. He begins with that opening hadith, and then briefly gives a small explanation on these parts. So he begins by mentioning, فَشَهَادَةُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ عِلْمُ الْعَبْدِ وَاعْتِقَادُهُ that the testimony of La ilaha illallah, it is the knowledge of the servant and his belief. وَالْتِزَامُهُ أَنَّهُ لَا يَسْتَحِقُّ الْأُلُوهِيَّةَ وَالْعُبُودِيَّةَ 
illallah wahdahu la sharika lah. It is that a servant has knowledge and recognition and belief and implementation of what is necessitated in the belief that none has the right to worship except Allah alone without any partners. So you have belief in that, you have knowledge of that, and you have action upon that. Waltizamuhu, that he then sticks to that statement and implements that statement. What is the implementation of saying that you believe none has the right to be worshipped except Allah alone? The implementation is of course that you then make sure every act of worship you do, you do it only and purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why the scholars, they say many people, they fell into ignorance when they say, La ilaha illallah, which necessitates that your worship is for Allah alone, and yet they still go and prostrate to the graves, and they still go and do tawaf around the graves. That is a great error upon them, a great error and deviation and kufr and shirk. This action that they have fallen into despite saying, La ilaha illallah. So the intent here is to understand it, to believe in it, and to implement what it necessitates, which is that you single out all of your worship to Allah alone. You often hear this phrase, That section there is a tawkeed. It is simply an emphasis. It is an emphasis upon La ilaha illallah. That none has the right to be worshipped in truth except Allah. He alone without any partners. That part of the statement is emphasizing even more that you will single out your worship to Allah alone. So he says, فَيُوجِبُ ذَلِكَ عَلَى الْعَبْدِ What this statement, the shahada, necessitates from a servant is إخلاص جميع الدين لله تعالى that you will make all of your religion pure and sincere to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that all of your worships whether apparent or hidden whether they are open and can be seen by the people or they are concealed acts of worship that nobody sees, whichever type they may be of, that all of them are done sincerely for the sake of Allah alone. And that you do not associate any partners alongside Allah in all of the affairs of the religion. وَهَذَا أَصْلُ دِينِ جَمِيعِ الْمُرْسَلِينَ وَأَتْبَاعِهِمْ And that 
is the foundation of all of the prophets and messengers, all of the revelations that the prophets and messengers came with, Noah, Abraham, Moses, all of the prophets and messengers from the past up to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, all of them came with the same message of Tawheed. All of them came with La ilaha illallah essentially. And Allah told us in the Quran, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ مِنْ رَسُولٍ إِلَّا نُوحِي إِلَيْهِ أَنَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا أَنَا فَاعْبُدُونَ That we did not send a messenger before you from the messengers, except that we reveal to them that there is none worthy of worship in truth except I, except Allah. So worship me. That is the message of all of the prophets and messengers throughout history. All of them were Muslim. Nuh alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam, Ibrahim alayhi salam, Isa alayhi salam, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. All of them Muslim upon Islam in terms of Tawheed. The rulings may have been different. The fiqh. At the time of Ibrahim salam, the time of Yusuf salam, different at different times, the fiqh. But the tawheed, that was always the same for all of the prophets and messengers. And then he says, وَشَهَادَةُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ The testimony that you believe Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. What does that mean? That the servant believes that Allah sent the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam as a messenger to all of mankind and the jinn. Athaqalain from the word thiqal in Arabic, which means something that is heavy and a burden. And it indicates that mankind and jinn have both been burdened with fulfilling something. What have they been burdened with the responsibility of fulfilling? This sharia, the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Quran and the sunnah. So the jinn and the humans are known as the two creations that were burdened with a responsibility. So you believe the messenger was sent to bring the glad tidings of paradise and reward for those who are righteous. And as a warner against those who oppose and disobey the commands of Allah. يَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَى تَوْحِيدِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى and you believe that the messenger called the people to the tawheed of Allah and to the obedience to Allah and that you believe in all of that which the messenger informed us of when you say ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluhu then you mean that you believe in everything the messenger told us about in everything the messenger informed us of, 
and that you will obey him and emulate and implement his commandments and that you will stay away from the prohibitions that he prohibited us from. وَأَنَّهُ لَا سَعَادَةَ وَلَا صَلَاحَ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ إِلَّا بِالْإِيمَانِ بِهِ وَطَاعَتِهِ And that you recognize that there is no happiness and there is no rectification and goodness for you in this world and in the afterlife except by having iman in the messenger and obeying him and that it is upon you to give priority and precedence to the love of the messenger over all others to give priority and precedence to the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam even over yourself over your son, your father and the people, meaning that you will obey the messenger, you do not obey the creation, even if your own father tells you to commit shirk or a sin, then you do not obey in committing shirk or kufr or sinning or bid'ah. You will obey the messenger. No obedience to creation in disobedience to the creator, Allah. And by extension, therefore, the messenger and the revelation that came. وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ أَيَّدَهُ بِالْمُعْجَزَاتِ الدَّالَةِ عَلَى رِسَالَتِهِ And you believe, you believe also regarding the messenger that Allah gave him miracles. And these are mentioned in the books of Aqeedah, the miracles that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to the messenger Various miracles are mentioned of the messenger. And also you have the recognition of the great knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestowed upon the messenger and the lofty characteristics and morals and behaviors that Allah bestowed upon the messenger. Just as Aisha radiallahu anha mentioned, كَانَ خُلُقُهُ Al-Qur'an That his mannerisms were that of the Qur'an, the mannerisms of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَبِمَا اشْتَمَلَ عَلَيْهِ دِينُهُ مِنَ الْهُدَى وَالرَّحْمَةِ وَالْحَقِّ And also your recognition of the fact that this religion that the Messenger came to us with from Allah, it is filled with guidance and mercy and truth and goodness for you for this world and for the afterlife. Goodness for you in this world and in the afterlife. Your rectification now and in the afterlife is in following the guidance of the Prophet wasallam. And from the greatest of his signs is the Qur'an. The great noble Qur'an is from the greatest of the signs, from what is in it of truth. The truth that you find in the Qur'an, the guidance that you find in the Qur'an, the commandments, the prohibitions, 
All of that from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Arabs at that time, despite their strength in the Arabic language, they were not able to bring anything comparable to the Qur'an, the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the introduction the author begins with, or the first section he begins with, in Kitab tahara which is unusual. Because normally if you're going to study the chapter of purification, and you're going to study fiqh, you do not expect this kind of introduction about tawheed. So why is it there? So that's one answer, that tawheed is the first type of purification, or one of the types of purification. Because one type of purification is the internal purification. The internal purification, and that is the purification of shirk and kufr, out and tawheed, and the beauty of tawheed and sincerity within. That is one explanation. Also, that's the other explanation. Learning about fiqh, about how to pray, how to do wudu, how to do hajj, how to fast. All of that is only going to count if you are actually in the first place upon Tawheed. Like we said, the five pillars. If you don't believe in La ilaha illallah, you don't accept that. Then even if you learn how to make wudu and pray, and you go and make wudu and pray, will it count? No. So all of fiqh is based upon the origin of Tawheed. That a believer is upon La ilaha illallah. And then he learns all of the fiqh and implements all of the fiqh. And the other explanation as well that purification of tawheed or the shirk and the kufr and the tawheed inserted within is a type of purification too. That's why the kuffar are known as impure. They are known as being impure. But if a kafir completely washes his, himself completely washes himself soap and, and gel and everything and he comes out of the shower after an hour is that kafir still impure his body is completely pure so how is he still impure because in his heart he still has the other impurity his body is pure now an hour in the shower with the soap and the gel and everything his body is pure but inside his body, there is still an impurity of kufr and shirk. So then, after that introduction, we come into the first sections of the fiqh. And that is, Fasl Fil The chapter regarding water. Or technically, waters. The different types of waters. Because in order to learn about how to pray, a prerequisite is to make wudu. And in order to be able to make wudu, you need to have water. So when they start the books of fiqh, they don't start on the prayer. 
Because before the prayer, you need to make wudu. But they don't start on the wudu, because before you can make wudu, you need water. So the books of fiqh always start on the water first. Which water are you allowed to use to make wudu? Which kind of water is okay? Which kind of water is not okay? That's where they always begin. Because once you know which type of water is okay to use, then you can use it and make the wudu, and then you can go and pray. So the first step is knowing about the rulings on water. In many of the books of fiqh, they mention multiple different ahadith in the bigger books of fiqh, talking about the different types of water. We'll mention some of those briefly here. So he says, As for the prayer, فَلَهَا شُرُوطٌ تَتَقَدَّمُ عَلَيْهَا It has certain conditions that come before it. فَمِنْهَا And from those conditions that come prior to you being able to pray, one of them is at-tahara, purification. كَمَا قَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ لَا يَقْبَلُ اللَّهُ صَلَاةً بِغَيْرِ الطَّهُورٍ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not accept a prayer without purification. Does not accept a prayer without purification. And often the wording of this hadith that you find is لَا يَقْبَلُ اللَّهُ صَلَاةَ أَحَدِيكُمْ إِذَا أَحْدَثَ حَتَّى يَتَوَضَّ أَوْ أَحَدِيكُمْ بِغَيْرِ طَهُورٍ The meaning is all the same, that Allah does not accept the prayer of one of you, a prayer without purification. Your prayer will not be accepted without purification. You must be upon purification in order for your prayer to be accepted. فَمَنْ لَمْ يَتَطَهَّرْ مِنَ الْحَدَثِ الْأَكْبَرِ وَالْأَصْغَرِ وَالنَّجَاسَةِ فَلَا صَلَاةَ لَهِ So whomsoever does not purify himself from the major impurity, like the sexual intercourse and the janabah, or the minor impurity, like when you break wind, and then you have to make wudu again, whomsoever does not purify himself from those impurities that have occurred, or any other impurity on his body, then there will be no prayer for him. Until you go and purify those impurities. And purification is two types. The first of them, Purification with water. 
And that is the origin. When someone says to you, clean something, wash something, the origin and the default of purifying and cleaning and cleansing something is with water. That is the default of purification. Someone says to you, go clean the car, go clean the shirt, go clean anything. The origin and the default of cleaning and washing and purification is water. That is the default of purification. So then, if water is the default in purification, water is the origin of purification, we then need to know what type of water are we allowed to use. So he mentions here, فَكُلُّ مَا إِن نَزَلَ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ Every type of water that descends from the sky is permissible to use for purification. And every type of water that descends from the sky, we're talking about rain. Rain water can be used for purification. It is pure water. The rain water that comes down, collect it, use it for purification. Wudu, ghusl, washing the clothes, najasa. The rain water is pure to use. Aw naba'a al ard. Secondly, water that emanates, that gushes out from the ground. If you dig deep down, you come across water in the ground. That water which comes out, the springs of water that come out, water from the ground, that is pure water that can be used. Pure water for purification. فَهُوَ طَهُورُ يَظَهِّرُ مِنَ الْأَحْدَاثِ وَالْأَخْبَاثِ So that type of water is all good. That is the origin. Rainwater from the skies and water from the ground. Most, all of the water, that's what it is. Rivers, lakes, seas, oceans. It's rainwater and water in the ground. That is the water. But now there are some rulings about this water. وَلَوْ تَغَيَّرَ لَوْنُهُ أَوْ طَعْمُهُ أَوْ رِيحُهُ بِشَيْءٍ طَاهِرٍ كَمَا قَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ إِنَّ الْمَاءَ طَهُورٌ لَا يُنَجِّسُ شَيْءٍ He then says, even if, even if its color or its taste or its smell changes by something pure it is still pure in order to understand this you must remember those three characteristics the taste the smell and the color the taste the smell and the color so now upon what we've said so far if you're out camping and you come across a lake of water out in the hills you come across a lake of water that lake of water where does it come from 
the pure sources of water, the rainfall, the groundwater, you have a lake. So by default, that lake is pure. And you can use it to make wudu in. But there are three important things to remember. The color, the taste, and the smell. If the color or the taste or the smell of that pure water changes by something impure, Make very careful notes on this section. If that water, its color or taste or smell changes because of something impure that went into it, then that water is now no longer considered as pure. So just as an example... You're out then in the hills and you come across a small lake, very small lake, small amount of water, like a pond almost, but it's natural, just collected water from the rainfall, etc. But that small pond of water, all the campers in that area, for example, have been using it to urinate in. They've been urinating in that puddle, in that pond of water behind the the woods in that area. So when you come to it now, by default, it's natural water. It was rainwater, groundwater, small, tiny pond, lake, just formed in the woods. But you now notice it is of a different smell because all the campers of the area have been coming and urinating in it. The smell of it is different. Even the color. If all of them, hundreds of them every day come and urinate in that's their spot, even the color of it will have changed. And certainly, even the taste will have changed. Now can you say this water is pure for you to make wudu with? By, by default, it was pure. Rainwater, groundwater, a lake. But now its characteristics have changed. The color or the smell, or the taste. It doesn't have to be all three. Even if one of those three was changed because of an impurity that went into it, then that water is now considered impure. What if, that's clear, that's clear, if the color, or the taste, or the smell changes... What if you're out in that same campsite, so this water you're not going to use now, you carry on, and you find a massive lake. Huge lake on the next side of the wood. Huge lake. And you notice in the corner, one of the campers is urinating in it. One of the campers in that campsite has come and is urinating in the corner of this massive lake. From here all the way down to uh, uh, Tesco. Or a huge lake all the way, they're massive. You see someone urinating in the corner of it. You look into the lake, by default this lake is pure rainwater, natural water, natural lake. By default it's pure. But you can see someone urinating in it. Is it permissible for you to make wudu from this water or not? 
Yes, what? Before we get to those evidences, just from what we mentioned so far, because neither it's color, the, a lake that big, one person comes and urinates in the corner, is that amount of urine with this amount of a lake going to change the color of the lake? Nothing, it will just dissolve into it. Will it change the taste of it? He's urinating all the way down that corner of the lake. You sip something here, are you going to taste anything? Nothing. The smell, are you going to smell anything? Nothing. So that huge lake, even though some impurity is going into it, it's so big, neither the color, nor the smell, nor the taste has changed. It remains as it was. So in that case, even with that impurity, this lake, its characteristics have not Changed, it is therefore still pure for you to use. So far the examples are clear. Natural water which is permissible and pure to use. If some impurity goes into it to such an extent that it manages to change one of the three characteristics, then the water is impure. But if you have a large amount of water, some impurity goes into it, but it cannot, does not have the ability to change the color of the water or the smell of the water or the taste of the water, then the water is still pure. You can still use it. What if you have pure water you have some pure water. Imagine now you fill your bath. You fill your bath at home with pure water. It's filled with pure bottled water, tap water. Pure water that can normally be used for purification. Then that bath full of water, you pour in bottles and bottles of your favorite shampoos and soaps and all types of things. And the color completely changes, the smell of it all changes, the taste of it all changes. You've poured in bottles and bottles of your gels and shampoos and soaps and all types of things. That's how you like your bath. So now that water, color's completely gone on it, the smell has gone on it, different smell altogether, taste is going to be all soapy and gel and everything now. Can you use that water for wudu? Yes. What's gone into it, is it pure or not? It's pure. Gels and soaps and those things, they're pure. What you've put into it are all pure items. But they have changed the characteristics of the water. They've changed the characteristics of the water. So what's the difference between what we're saying now compared to what we were saying before. Before we were talking about the characteristics of water changing due to something impure going in. Now we're talking about the characteristics of the water changing by something pure going in. So if something pure goes into that water and changes one of the three characteristics, it doesn't have to be all of them, just one of them. One or two or three changes those characteristics. Can you still use it or not? The fatwa is depends if it's a 
So, in that scenario there, where something pure has gone into the water, and it has changed the characteristics of the water, it depends on whether you can use that water or not. What does it depend on? Basically depends on whether that liquid is still called water or not. That bath, if you put soap into it, you put your bubble bath, whatever, into it. Now when you taste the water, the characteristic has changed. It's not going to be like normal water taste. But when somebody comes and you say to them, what is in the bath? They are going to say to you, it's water. It is still called water. So that bit of bubble bath or, or gel or soap hasn't changed the fact that this water is still called water. If you go out in the forest again to that massive lake and there are trees all around the lake and their leaves from all around fall into the lake and so when you look at the surface of the lake its color has changed it's not water color anymore it's all green you go to the lakes out in the woods when the leaves of the trees are all in there. The surface of the water all looks green. It's become green. The algae, the leaves and all those things. The characteristic has changed. The color has changed. But when somebody says to you, look at this lake. What is this lake made of? What is it? It is water. The name has not changed. It is still called water. So if something pure goes into some pure water and changes one of the characteristics or more than one of the characteristics, but that water is still labeled and termed as water, then you can still use it for wudu. If, however, something pure goes into the pure water... And that pure water is no longer called water. You can't call it water anymore. Then can you use it for wudu? Then you cannot. They give an ex various examples. They say, some of the scholars even say about chlorine. Some of the scholars, and, and this one may be slightly different over, but some of them say water with chlorine in it, like the swimming baths water, with all of that heavy amount of chlorine in it, it's technically still water. That is technically still known as water. But some of them, they say, the change is so great there, you can't use it. But that's differed over because it is still called water. But one other example where they don't differ on, they say, for example, you go to the petrol station, the diesel and the petrol you put into your cars. It's a liquid. It's a liquid. Is that liquid water? Clearly not. You taste that, it doesn't taste like water. You smell it, it doesn't smell like water. You, uh, 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 what's the other going to be? The color of it. The color isn't going to be like water. To such an extent, to such an extent that 
petrol and diesel, you can't call them water. They are not water. They are a different entity now. They are pure. They are pure. You're filling up and you get some diesel on your clothes. You get some petrol on your clothes. No problem. Just dry it off and you can come still pray. That's not impure. It's pure. But that liquid cannot be called water. The characteristics have changed of that liquid to such a degree that it's no longer named as water. So that's what you have to remember with pure liquids. A pure liquid which may have some pure content going into it, changing its color, smell or taste. If the pure contents that go into that pure liquid and change it to such a degree that the water is no longer called water. Somebody looks at it now, they say, no, that's diesel. No, that's uh, a petrol. They can't call it water. Then that cannot be used for wudu. It is not possible to use it for wudu. Nobody can come and say, but technically uh, diesel and petrol and these liquids, they're not impure. It's not an ajasa. So why can't I use that liquid for wudu, for example? We say no, because those liquids, pure, yes. But in terms of their name, they are not named as water. They are not considered as water anymore. Therefore, you cannot use them. There are a few points to mention on that. So one of the issues they talk about here is... When can you differentiate or can you differentiate between the ruling on large amounts of water and small amounts of water? Because there is a hadith that mentions that if water, the amount of water you have if it gets to the qullatain level, and that is differed over exactly how much that is, some of the scholars have mentioned it is approximately 160 liters. But that's differed over. The point is quite a large amount of water. 160 liters, imagine 60 uh, uh, bottles of fizzy drink, pour 60, uh, 160 bottles how much liquid is going to be there? That is the minimum or that is one quantification some scholars have given. But the point is a significant amount of water, not just a little bottle or something. The hadith says, when water gets to that significant amount, then it does not carry or it cannot become impure. If water is that large, that amount it cannot become impure. So the large lake we were talking about, somebody comes and urinates in it, that's not going to become impure. They mean by the hadith, as some scholars interpret it, any large body of water will typically not become impure. But is it possible? Even that huge lake, if they came with, if they turned it into a, a garbage dump and they started dumping everything in there, 
After a month of dumping in there, the whole water would become a dump. It would become dirty, it would become changed color, changed smell, change everything, muddy, all types of things to that lake. To the extent you wouldn't call it a lake anymore. So now, it would become impermissible to use. So, a large amount of water, when you have such a large amount, it's usually very difficult for any of the characteristics to change on it. A lake that big from here to Tesco, you would need a huge amount of impurity or purity to go into it to try and change the color of that lake or the smell of that lake or the uh, uh, taste of that lake. Normally, large bodies of water don't change very easily. You need a lot to go in there to change them. So that's what the hadith says. When water gets to that large body, then it doesn't become impure. Many of the scholars, the majority of them have said the meaning of that is basically that normally it won't become impure when it's a huge amount of water. But technically, in some circumstance, something could happen and maybe the characteristics of one of them could change. And in that case, we would give the ruling that it has become impure. But the hadith also means, therefore, that if water has not reached the qullatain level for our purposes, let's just go with the 160 liters example. That's what some of the scholars have mentioned as an approximation. If water is not of 160 liters, let's say we have just 500 mil. We have 500 mil of water, nowhere near the 160 liters. According to the hadith then, this water, if an impurity went into it, regardless of whether any of the characteristics changed, they would give the ruling that it is impure. And that is an opinion and a position of some of the fuqaha. They say the hadith says when water gets to qullatain, for our example, let's say 160 liters. When it gets more than that, it's rarely going to become impure. You would need a lot to make that impure. But if it doesn't get to that level, you've got 1 liter, 2 liters, 10 liters, 20 liters, then that water, according to some of them, in line with this hadith, they say if any impurity goes into it, regardless of whether the smell, the taste, or the color changes, we give the ruling it is impure. But that is not the strongest opinion. The strongest opinion, the easiest way to remember, is the three characteristics. Whether it's a small amount of water or a large amount of water. Whatever the body of water, you remember the rule of the three characteristics. You have a, an amount of water... It's a pure water to begin with. Something's gone into it. The thing which has gone into it could either be pure or it could be something impure. If it's something impure that's gone into it, we have a look. Has the smell, the color or the taste of this water changed with that impurity? If it has, the water has become impure. If that impurity has failed to make any impact on this water in those three characteristics, then the water is still pure and can be used. If it was a purity that went into it, 
and managed to change the characteristics, then it comes down to whether this liquid is still called water or not. If the people still say, no, it's water, then it's water and you can still use it. But if it's changed so much that now you cannot call it water anymore, it's not water anymore, it's become a different entity now with that purity, then you cannot use it. That's the easiest and the common method of the scholars to remember. The Qullaytain opinion exists, and many of the madhahib, they have that opinion too. But one of the things they mention about that opinion, upon that other opinion, they say if water gets above the Qullaytain, let's say 160 liters, if it gets above that, it's not really going to ever become impure. You'd need something big. But if it's below that, according to their opinion, any impurity that goes into that water impurifies it even if none of the characteristics are changed. So then in that case, let's go with the 160 liters. Imagine you have 159.9 liters. Just going off the example of 160, which is just an approximation, an opinion of some. Imagine you have 159.9 liters of water. According to this opinion, that is considered a large amount or a small amount of water? Small Small amount of water. According to one opinion, if any impurity goes into a small amount of water, you don't need to look at the characteristics, it's considered impure. So if one speck of urine falls into that water, and when you measure it, it's still 159.9, just a tiny speck of urine fell into it. According to that opinion, it's become impure. But then if you get 101 mil of urine and pour it into that bucket, it now becomes 160.1. It's now become a large amount of water that 100 and uh, 100.1 whatever we said of urine is it going to change the color the smell or the taste of 160 liters of water now no it won't 100 mil of urine in 160 mil of water isn't going to change the color the taste or the smell so you've essentially purified the water by adding urine into it they say what are you talking about how can this be the case You've purified the water by adding more urine into it. But that's another debate. It's not here in these books. That's mentioned in some of the bigger books of fiqh. So here he says, uh, he says, um, That's basically the discussion we've just had. And then he says, فَإِن تَغَيَّرَ أَحَدُ أَوْصَافِهِ بِنَجَاسَةٍ فَهُوَ نَجِسٌ يَجِبُ اجْتِنَابُهُ if any of the characteristics, the taste, the smell, and the color change uh, with an impurity, then it is considered impure. You have to stay away from that water. The default of the water the natural water that rains and comes from the ground, the default of all of that is that it is pure, that is pure water. 
فإذا شك المسلم في نجاسة ماء أو ثوب أو بقعة أو غيرها فهو طاهر this is a principle now if a muslim comes across some water and he has a doubt regarding this water has it got some impurity in it or he needs to pray and he picks up his thobe and he's got a doubt is there some impurity in this thobe somewhere or he's about to pray and then he has a doubt was this area of land ground impure or not if you come across some doubt about the impurity of something a doubt the origin and the default is that it's pure fahuwa tahir aw tayaqqana at-taharatu wa shakka fil hadath fahuwa tahir if you know and this is the simple principle that everything is built upon certainty if you know that this water is pure you collected it from the rainwater just earlier in the day put your lid on it and there it is later on in the day you come and you start doubting what if this what if that maybe some impurity fell into it you forgot you left the lid off so now you're thinking, I don't know, I left the lid off. What if something fell into it? You know that originally you collected this as pure water. Now you're just doubting maybe this, maybe that, maybe the cat, maybe blah, blah, blah. Is that going to be still pure or not? Still pure. Because the default is you build upon your certainty. فهو طاهر لقوله صلى الله عليه وسلم في الرجل يخيل إليه أنه يجد شيء في الصلاة لا ينصرف حتى يسمع صوتا أو يجد ريحا There's a hadith where a man he came to the messenger and he said I have doubts all the time in the prayer that I've broken wind I have doubts I keep thinking I've broken wind So then the messenger said to him do not leave the prayer don't leave the prayer to go make wudu unless you actually hear something or you perceive or smell something until you actually realize that you've broken wind with some smell or with some noise then don't just break your prayer thinking i think something came out because the default is you are upon certainty of purity whatever your certainty is that's what you build upon the doubt is secondary it's just like in the prayer if you're praying and you get up and you start having some doubt Am I in the uh, third raka'ah or fourth raka'ah? You can't remember where you are. You know for definite you did your tashahud previously. So you know for definite at least you are in your third. But you can't remember. Did I do that and I, am I now in my fourth? For definite you know you are in your third at least. So therefore you should carry on praying upon your third and just... Make one more at the end and then do your prostrations for your doubt. You always build upon your certainty. Same with wudu. If you remembered at uh, Asr that you had made wudu, for definite you remember making wudu at Asr and then praying. Now Maghrib is coming up and you start thinking, after I prayed Asr, did I break wind up until now or not? And you can't remember. So you know for certainty you had wudu at 
Asr, and now coming up to Maghrib, you've got a doubt that you may have broken wind. Have you got wudu or not in that case? You have it. Your certainty is you made wudu. Your doubt is maybe you broke it. You can do the certainty. The opposite as well. You made your wudu at Asr. You prayed Asr. After Asr, when you were leaving the mosque, you remember breaking your wudu. 100% you remember as you were leaving the mosque, you broke your wudu. Now Maghrib time coming up, you're thinking, I remember 100% I broke my wudu as I was leaving the mosque after Asr. When I went home, did I make wudu again or not? So now you're doubting, did you purify after that or not? Where is the certainty? That you broke your wudu after Asr? Where is the doubt that you made your wudu after that? What do you build upon? The certainty that you broke your wudu, that you made it again is only a doubt. So now you have to make wudu again. You always build upon the certainty, not upon the doubt. That is a basic introduction. And like we said, this book is a summarized book of fiqh. We're not going to go into all of the details. For those who want more details, you can read up on Bulugh al-Maram and the explanations of Amdat al-Ahkam. You get a lot more details. This is very brief and very summarized. But from that there now, you have a brief and summarized understanding of water, the characteristics of water, purity, impurity, you have a general overview of those affairs. You could maybe mention as well, seawater and ocean water, is that pure or not? Yo, it's all come down from the natural sources of water. And the companions, they went to the messenger and they asked him, because seawater is salty. So the taste of it is different to normal water. Characteristic has changed. So they went to the messenger, some sailors, there's a hadith, some sailors, they went to the messenger to ask him, can we make wudu with the seawater? Because the taste is different, the characteristic is different. So the Prophet ﷺ told them, It is pure, the seawater, the ocean water to make your wudu with, and the dead animals in the sea, dead fish, you can take them and eat them, no sacrificing needed for fish. The dead fish, you can eat them, you can take the fish of the, the sea and eat them without any sacrificing needed. That's what we'll conclude on today then. Any questions up to there? If you go for some water, um, I know that you assume it to be the default diet, but if, um, if one of the characteristics has changed, do you still assume that it's something pure that, that made that change? Yeah, uh, uh, in, in natural water, it would be assumed to be pure. In the natural water, you're out in the forest, in the woods, in the natural waters, where their characteristics change, the default assumption it is upon purity. Leaves have gone in there, mud has gone into it, made it brown. Other things, they are natural things. It would not be the natural assumption that you're out somewhere and you come across a pond or a, or a stream. And the characteristic is different that you assume there has to be some impurity here. The natural is that it is natural affairs, and if it still has the name of water, you can use it. Mm, so the stagnant water didn't come up here, but that's often what they mention in the uh, uh, same chapter. Stagnant water, uh, meaning water that isn't flowing. 
rivers and streams and those kinds of things, they flow. Meaning they are always replenishing themselves, renewing. So if you go to a river and somebody urinates, five minutes later you could go to the same spot and get the water up because that water is now fresh water. That urine is gone. Flowing water. But what about stagnant water? Water that isn't flowing. So with stagnant water, there are narrations about the impermissibility of urinating in stagnant water, etc. Because stagnant water doesn't flow. So that impurity will just sit there. So your question about something close by, not directly in it. So if something, imagine you have the stagnant water now, and there is something close by to it, uh, of impurity, that is impacting on the water, but not through direct contact, but through proximity. If it is established that the water has been impacted by it, it would have to be established. Because the only real impact you're going to get from that, if it is not physical, if it's not physically that dead body or whatever, physically pieces flying in, that's a physical thing. But if it's just the smells, you have to establish that in reality the water is now of a different smell, not just the dead body or the corpse. If you took the water out and you went away, and then you give it to someone, and they can smell that deadness of the body and the, and the, of death in that water, they can smell it, then okay. You could say now the smell of the water has changed by something impure, uh, the impure smell of it has impacted upon this water, you could argue. But it's not really going to be applicable or something in real life. That a person could say a water's smell has changed because color and taste would have to be something more physical. But the smell may be from the smell of something nearby. It would be very difficult to give that ruling. It would be difficult. To say that this water is now also impure because it has taken on the smell of something impure nearby. Allah alam, but that would be difficult to give the ruling on. You mentioned uh, the shampoo inside the water. Hmm. Could you actually use that to gargle and even... Use that too? To wash your mouth and sniff shampoo. It's very weird when you sniff it, isn't it? To clean your nose. Permissible? In wudu you mean or what? Or generally or what? So like you're having a, a bath and then could you make wudu from that even if it's called shampoo? Yeah, yeah, like we said, if the water maintains its title as water, you got some bubble bath in there, you got some shampoo in there, it's foaming up a little bit, but it's water. You can use that, it is still water, and it's permissible to use under the title of water with purity in it. Huh? You know, this is always the problem when you do a summarized book. And this is why I don't do summarized books like this. Then everybody asks the questions that if you just did the full book, then you wouldn't have to answer any of them. All these questions, they come in the full, in the full versions. They talk about all of these things. Imagine you have a bucket of water now. You collected it, rainwater. One person comes and makes wudu in it. Can another person come and use the same water now? One person's already made wudu in it. Can somebody else come and make wudu in it as well? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. 
What's your evidence? Yes, yes, everyone. Huh? That we'll put down as a homework for this week. Homework, find us a fatwa, find us some answer and some evidence. If you have a bucket of water, not a tap where the water is running, a bucket of water, something filled. One person comes and puts their hands in there and makes wudu. So they were upon a state of non-tahara. They used that water to make tahara. Has that water lost its ability to give tahara to someone else now? Because one person has come and taken off their tahara by using that water to give themselves tahara. Purification. Can that water now be used by someone else to come and make their tahara as well? That's your homework for this week. Do some investigation. There's a very simple hadith. You'll find it. It's not complicated. And we'll start with that from next time, inshallah ta'ala, in two weeks' time. Anybody else? Last question. Impurities, what is considered as an impurity, there are lists again that they give of those kinds of things. The urine and the feces, bawlul adami wa ghaituhu, the urine and the feces of a human would be considered impure. There are certain other types of feces and urine of some animals, not all. Animals that you can eat, sheep, cows, their urine uh, and feces is not considered impure. And all of those come in the, in the big chapters as well. Uh, there are things differed over like the body of a dog. The saliva is not differed over, but the body of a dog is that impure if it touches you. Alcohol, there's a difference over whether it is impure if it goes in your garments or if it's only impure when you drink it. Uh, so some of the things, they have differences over their levels of impurity and how much it impacts you and which ways it impacts you. But the general impurities of urine and feces and those types of affairs are clear. Yeah, so in winter, you don't have access to your uh, water. Boiler man is too busy, he won't come. Says he has three months waiting list. So now, you have no water. No access to water in your house. Do you make tayammum even if there's snow outside? The general ruling the fuqaha have mentioned, obviously tayammum is allowed when there's no water available or... If water is available, but you can't use it. Tayammum is allowed when no water is available, or water is available, but you can't use it. You know, maybe you got some medical reason, you're not allowed to use water. Or you're back in the camping site again, today's camping site, you're there again. The lake is there, but in, the, in between there's a pack of lions. The water's right there, but you can't use it, you can't get to it. So tayammum is allowed, but the fuqaha, the scholars, they say, a general kind of rule almost. If you live in an urban environment, in a city or a town, then it is almost impossible for you to ever be given permission to make tayammum. They say because in an urban environment, water is, you know, these kinds of cities and towns, 
not deserts and nomadic places, but cities and towns that we live in now, water is always available. Your house is cut off, you go next door and fill up a, a bucket and come and make wudu. Your whole street is cut off, you cannot say none of us have water on our street. Your whole block, this BD 7, 8, wherever we are, the whole area is cut off, no water anywhere. You still can't claim I can make wudu because all you have to do is go to Tesco and buy a bottle of water. Water is available. Water is available. This whole BD area cuts off. All the pipes are finished. You can't make them. Go to Tesco, buy a bottle, a bottle of water, come back and make wudu. Water is available in urbanized areas. So they say you would not be allowed to make wudu if your supply cuts off at home, your street cuts off, your neighborhood cuts off. You go to the shop, you buy a bucket, a bottle of water. You go to the next area, it takes you five minutes to drive to your BD next place. They've still got their water. Go to a shop there, go to a person there, get water. Water is available here. In an urban area, when is it ever going to be the situation that the whole of Bradford runs out of water a drought? Never going to happen in a town or a city. So the fuqaha, they say, generally in towns and cities, there's no such thing as tayammum. You're always going to have access to water somewhere. Even if you have to go to a shop and buy it, you have to go middle of the night, 24 hour station, petrol station, buy it. Water is there. You have water everywhere. And with the snow example, with the snow example, it is considered water. You can easily go get that snow, bring it inside, you boil it for one second, you have water. And you can now use that water for your wudu. So this is considered access to water. In urbanized areas, you have access to water. It's a mistake when people think my water's cut off at home, let me go make tayammum. Next door, they still got water. The shop has still got water. The next BD, five minute drive in your car, go to the shop and pick up water. As long as water is available, you have to go and use it. So uh, in that scenario, it's slightly different. Let's say I'm outside in winter. Mm. Absolutely. Snow, the minute you pick it up in your hand, it becomes... The heat of your hand in one second will make that snow all become water on your hand. So you can pick up the snow, you can put it everywhere, it will completely melt onto your surface, onto your skin as water. You put the snow there, it's not going to stay as snow. In, in one second, two seconds, it will all become water. It's water. That is water. And you can put that everywhere and make wudu. The Prophet used to make wudu with less than a handful of water. Not even a handful of water, barely, that much, like this. This bottle is enough to make wudu. Two people, three people even, to make wudu. And that's one of the sunnah acts of wudu. Don't waste water when making wudu. It has to be used in minimal terms from the sunnah actions of making wudu. This is a ton of water to make wudu. Wudu is not that you have to pour and pour and pour water and it's flowing off. That's a mistake. People think you have to make wudu like you're having a shower. Wudu is just that you put the water onto that area. You have water here in Hajj. You do that. Now you put that here. That is water going onto your wudu body parts. That is it. Water is going everywhere onto it. It doesn't mean you have to pour it and pour it everywhere. So that tiny handful would be enough to get everywhere. A bit of snow in your hands would melt enough to be able to pour onto the body parts too. Anybody else? Now it's open. Maghrib is almost here.
Look at these questions. <laughs> what do you do if you're blind or and deaf and you have no taste and you find some water? And then how are you going to know if it's okay or not? Huh? No, no, he's blind, he's deaf, and he doesn't have taste. This is what they would call in the books of fiqh, an-nawadir la hukma laha. They say in the books of fiqh, a situation that is so rare, there is no ruling to give on it. That one you work it out in that situation. Situations that are so rare, an-nawadir la hukma laha. There is no ruling you can give for it. So these kinds of situations, Allah Alam, I'm sure if you go into the big books of fiqh, you'll find something. Uh, circumstances where they mention all types of situations in the big books of fiqh, you know, 30, 40 volumes, some of them. They give you so many examples. They say, like uh, they say, the imam is praying and the imam's wudu breaks. So now the imam has to, he has to go. And somebody else has to step up and lead. And then that person's space has to be filled up. But then what if his wudu breaks and the next person doesn't know any Quran? They give all so many examples in the books of fiqh about what to do here, what to do there. Like the one about when you come to the masjid and the row is full, maybe the next row is full and you walk in, the row is full side to side. So you're going to have to start a new row. But there's a big difference of opinion between the scholars. Whether one person is allowed to make a row by himself, whether that's permissible or not. Some scholars hold the opinion that it's okay, you have to make a row, then you cannot fit, they're full. So you got to make a row by yourself and other people inshallah will come. But other scholars, they have the opinion, you can't. There's no such thing as a row with just... One person, you can't make your row. So they say, what are you supposed to do then? Some of them say, and all of this is in the books of fiqh, where they give examples and examples. Some of them say he should pull one person back from the full row so that he can now make his row. But then you've left a gap. So then they say, okay, forget that. They say another thing you could do, he could walk through the rows and stand next to the imam. Permissible. Permissible. He can walk through the rows and start with the imam and make a row with him. And, and there's a few other examples they give. What, what about this and what about that? And the others, they refute them. But if you pull somebody back, you've done dhulm to him. Because the rows at the front have more reward than the ones at the back. He was maybe, mashallah, in the first row. You came and you pulled him out of the first row. Dhulm. So they have all these things in the detailed books of fiqh. If you go to even simplified ones like Bulugh al-Maram. Bulugh al-Maram is a middle level, easy kind of book. If you go to the explanation of a Shaykh al-Fawzan, more than enough. You go to like Umdat al-Ahkam of al-Bassam. Those kinds of explanations are simple, straightforward, more than enough to cover all the basics of the fiqh. But anybody who wants to go into more detail, our intention here is not to go into the more detail the full book, we've done it before. You can go online, find a book of purification, Bulug al-Maram, and there's 50, 60 lessons on just this topic of Tahara. What we've done today, that will be maybe five or six lessons long. But here, we'll keep it summarized, inshallah.
do they all line up on the right, or is it is it line in the middle? Those kinds of things, they are not anything that impacts on the validity of the prayer. So if an imam, the people, they line up on his right hand side and that's... You mean with the imam on, uh, next to him? Yeah. Not behind him. With him, yeah. So if they line up all of them on his right hand side, legitimate, perfectly good. If they lined up with the imam in the middle... And then people either side of him, it would be valid too, because that kind of situation would only arise because of a lack of space in the first place. So if they had to go on both sides of the imam, that's the way it worked, the prayer is valid. Those kinds of issues don't have an impact on the validity of the prayer. Yeah, so there's a narration about not making rows where the row can be broken up by pillars. Like these pillars in the mosque now and that big pillar there. You shouldn't make a row where you end up in the middle of the pillar so there's a break. The, the people, then a pillar, then people carrying on. You shouldn't do that. Unless due to physical constraints on space, then it's permissible. But otherwise, by natural lining up, you should make the lines in the mosque in a way that they don't collide with the pillar. Only when you're out of space, you must fill every part of the mosque, then you can arrange the rows in whatever way, even if they end up uh, the row coming into the pillar. So the urine of a human we mentioned is considered impure. If your urine went on to you, that's impure. You have to clean that, purify that. The urine of a baby, does it have the same ruling or not? If a baby's urine went on your clothes, can you go and pray in those clothes afterwards? Yeah. Huh? If it's a girl... It's impure if it's a boy. Yeah, so there's a hadith about that too. That yurashu min bawlil ghulam. That when a baby boy, and what we mean by a baby boy, a baby, what they mean by it in the books of fiqh in relation to the hadith, is a baby that is not yet eating solids. A baby that has started eating solids, then the ruling is the same ruling as adults. The urine is impure. But a baby who has not yet started eating solids, a baby boy who has not yet started eating solids, only milk yet, the urine of that baby boy, if it got onto your garments, all you have to do is just sprinkle some water over it and that's it, you can pray. But a baby girl, even if she is not eating solids yet, the urine of a baby girl is considered impure. And some of the scholars, they made ijtihad, and there's no explanation in the hadith, but they made ijtihad, and they said maybe it is because of the biology difference between boys and girls, between males and females. Females obviously later in life will have the menstrual cycle, etc. The biology inside of a female is different to the biology of a boy. So some scholars said maybe that's the reason in the hadith that the boy, the baby boy that isn't eating solids yet, 
you just sprinkle some water over, over that and you're okay. But the baby girl, you must wash it. So purity is required on three places as a condition of the prayer. Those three places are your own body has to be pure, your own clothes and garments have to be pure, and the the ground where you're going to pray has to be pure. Three things. So now if urine falls onto the mosque in an area... Urine of a baby boy that isn't eating or generally of a child? child. A, a child generally, so impurity. An impurity, a child urinates somewhere in the mosque. Then that is mentioned in the hadith as well, the hadith of the A'rabi. When the A'rabi, a Bedouin at the time of the Prophet ﷺ came into the mosque and it mentions, فَبَالَ فِي طَائِفَةٍ مِّنَ الْمَسْجِدِ فَسَجَرَهُ النَّاسِ فَمَنَعَهُمُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمُ A Bedouin man, Bedouins in those days, they used to live out in the deserts, etc. They weren't living in Medina, they weren't urbanized, they were like out in the deserts and rural, and they didn't know about the lifestyle of urban living, they didn't know about these affairs, they were out in deserts and things. So this man came and urinated in the corner of the mosque of the Prophet So the companions started... Becoming agitated with him. What's he doing? Urinating in the mosque. They started to become agitated with him. But the messenger said to them, Leave him, leave him, leave him. Let him finish. He allowed him to finish. When he finished, then the messenger told him that these masajid, they are the houses of Allah, and this activity, la yasluh. It is not appropriate and not permissible in the houses of Allah. The Bedouin had no idea. Remember, the mosque of the Prophet ﷺ in those days, it was mud walls, thatched roof, you know, the grass on the roof, the hay. And when it used to rain, all the water used to come through it. And the ground, there was nothing. It was just the normal ground. The normal mud on the soil, there was nothing on it. No concrete, no nothing, no carpet. Just the soil, the normal mud. With the grass on the roof. So when it used to rain, all the ground in the mosque used to become wet. The entrance, there wasn't even a door on it. Just an open entrance where they walk in and out. And it's mentioned in the seerah, some stray dogs sometimes used to come and they would be come into the entrance of the mosque just there, an open door. So the Bedouin, you know, walked into this building and it's just mud everywhere on the floor, normal ground. Thatched roof, just mud walls, just went into the corner, urinated. So then the messenger in the hadith, he tells the companions to leave him, and that is from the fiqh. Because if they started to shout at him and pull him and grab him, then he's in the middle of urinating, it's going to go everywhere. Better in that situation, minimize the impact in the corner where he is. If you grab him now, stop him, it's going to go everywhere. So he let him finish. Then the Prophet ﷺ, The Prophet ﷺ told them to bring a bucket of water and they poured it over that area. The cleansing of the ground when there is some impurity on it 
if it is an impurity with no physical mass, like urine, liquids, then all that is required is the pouring of water over it. With these carpets now, you'd pour the water over it, you'd run your brush across it, the normal cleansing procedure, and that's it. The water over it, the brush, etc. on it, rub into it to get it out of the carpet, water, and that's it. If it is an impurity with a physical mass, like feces, for example, then that, you cannot just pour the water over it. You can pour the water, but it has to be to the extent that all of the physical mass is removed from that spot. You'd have to physically wash away all of the physical mass of the impurity. Whereas with an impurity that has no physical mass, water, liquid, urine, then all that's required is the pouring of water on top of it. Uh, on concrete, if it was outside in the car park, that kind of concrete, nothing. Just pour the water on it, let it flow. Pour the water on it, let it flow, and it's gone, it's purified. Here on the carpets, because of the way it soaks in, pour the water on it, some brush or something, the normal method of cleaning, and that's it. Anybody else? Every single question that has come today, if you go to the Bulugh al-Maram explanation, every single one of it, all of them are in there. The topic of the uh, urine in the mosque, these other topics that were asked about the wudu in the same bucket of water, in the big books of fiqh, all of those things, they mention them. Anything else then? If you what? The graveyard is considered by its boundaries. So if there is a walled off section of the graveyard, there's a, a walkway, a pathway, a driveway, a road. Graveyards now, you can drive your cars through certain areas of them. And the graveyard is allotted to that area. Then separate to the graveyard, some other area, across the road area, across the fence area, whatever it might be then that would typically not be given the ruling of the graveyard. You wouldn't say that is the graveyard. They're not going to bury anybody there. That is not a burial site. That is a separate site for the car parks. But every graveyard you'd have to examine the way that it's set up. If the car park is set up in a way where it's surrounded by graves on this side and that side and every side and the car park is somehow in the middle of this area, it wouldn't be suitable to pray in a place like that. But if the car park is on the side of the graveyard at the side somewhere separated by a road or a fence or a walkway then that area is not where they bury bodies that is not a burial area you could pray down there and the graveyard is separate and if you want to keep away from any doubts especially for the commoners and the, the juhal who may not understand and know then it's better you don't even pray there pray outside better the best thing don't pray there at all how long is it going to take you to go outside of the graveyard and pray on the street instead to avoid any doubts for the commoners watching you and seeing you especially if the Qibla direction happens to be in the direction of the, where the graves are, then it would not be suitable to pray there. Hey, do, we, do we have any explanation about uh, why we do the tawaf for those who do the hajj? Yeah, the act of doing the tawaf. I don't know. I don't remember. 
Allah I don't remember. We'll have to see if uh we'll check. I don't remember. The definition of ibadah, there is no actual definition of ibadah as a fixed or set definition, but everybody uses the definition of Ibn Taymiyyah. Ismun jami'un li kulli ma yuhibbuhu Allahu yaradahu min al-aqwali wal-af'ali al-zahir wal-batina. A comprehensive term for everything that Allah loves and is pleased with from statements and actions, whether apparent or concealed. That is a definition because the purpose of a definition, the purpose of a definition is to identify what it wants to identify and to exclude what it does not want to identify. So now in this definition, it identifies it by saying everything that Allah loves and is pleased with from statements and actions. Obviously, anything that Allah is not pleased with and does not love can therefore not be an act of worship. But then on top of that, you have to go into the details. What is it that Allah loves and is pleased with? How do we work out what Allah loves and He is pleased with? How do we know what Allah loves and what He is pleased with? The Quran and the Sunnah. All of the revelation tells us what Allah loves and what He is pleased with. What are the worships? What are the actions that Allah loves and He is pleased with? All of that then, it's just a way of defining it in one term. Because every act of sunnah, every act of obligation, it is something which is beloved to Allah and Allah is pleased with it. You could say in other definitions, um, they mention along the lines of something that is of subservience to Allah with love. Something that you do out of subservience to Allah with love. And again, it's going around the same type of thing. All definitions of worship are just going to revolve around the same meaning, which is that you are doing what the Quran and the Sunnah has told you to do. And you are staying away from what the Quran and the Sunnah has told you to stay away from. You could phrase that in different ways. The phrasing of Ibn Taymiyyah is commonly what is used amongst the people. It is not something fixed. You could have different ways of explaining what ibadah is, what worship is. It wouldn't be a problem. So just I'm talking about the greatest, um, this is going to take it this week. And uh, I've heard some of them decided to have the grades, but sometimes it's not actually attached to the message itself. But it's like it, it wouldn't be suitable. Mosques that have graves right outside their walls, but still within the vicinity of their compound then it wouldn't be suitable because there's a difference between scholars whether the compound of a mosque is considered part of the mosque or not. Like in Al-Masjid al-Nabawi, the compound, the outside area where the, the big uh, umbrellas are, is that considered part of the mosque or not? Do you get the thousand rewards if you pray out there or not? There's a difference of opinion. Some scholars say all that outside area under the umbrellas, within the walls, there's the outside walls. When you get out of those walls... Then the hotels and everything start. But inside of those walls, many scholars, they say it is considered part of the mosque. That compound is all considered al-Masjid al-Nabawi. And same in the Haram, the compound. So if they have a mosque and then right outside within the compound of the mosque, there are graves, it would not be suitable to pray in those kinds of mosques.
Last one, I think it's time for Adhan. Anybody? In that case, we'll conclude upon that for today then. And inshallah ta'ala, this lesson continues in two weeks' time.